Support for WVIK comes from Kathleen Collins at the Dragonfly in Bettendorf. Using both conventional and alternative counseling methods for empowerment to help create change for individuals and couples. More information is at KathleenCollinsCounseling.com. You're listening to Heartland Politics with Robin Johnson, a presentation of WVIK Quad Cities NPR. And welcome back to the Heartland Politics Show and Podcast, which is aired on and distributed by WVIK, Quad Cities NPR. WVIK is the flagship public radio station in the Quad Cities region of northwestern Illinois and eastern Iowa. I'm your host, Robin Johnson, and ever since the New Deal era, the working class voters have been an essential cog in the Democratic Party coalition. But in recent years, American politics has undergone a dramatic realignment, where, as Iowa Republican Chair Jeff Kaufman said on this show last year, the Republican Party is now a blue-collar working-class party. My guest today has written a book about this new identity of the Republican Party. He's Patrick Ruffini, a a Republican pollster and co-founder of Echelon Strategies, or Insights, I'm sorry, a polling and analytics firm. Uh, Patrick also worked for former President George W. Bush. The book is called Party of the People Inside the Multiracial Populist Coalition Remaking the GOP. Uh, Patrick, thank you so much for taking the time to be on today. It's great to be here. It's a very appropriate topic here in our region, which is working class, which is uh, the heart of Obama-Trump country. So I'm looking very forward to this uh, discussion. But let's just start at the basics. What caused the working class to shift uh, to the degree that they have from the Democratic Party to the Republican Party? Was it economic issues? Was it cultural issues? Some mix? Uh, you know, I think it's it's some mix um, because I do think that, um, you know, I, I do think that when you look at um, culture in our politics, right, you know, it has only become more and more of a factor over the years. And I could go into some pretty dense academic literature about why. Um, but the long and the short of it is that um, it actually, you know, it actually is a function of, uh, you know, society, even the United States growing wealthier. Uh, you know, and sometimes it doesn't feel that way in an era of 20% inflation over three years. But um, over the long arc of history, um, as people have gotten relatively better off, there is this sense that, okay, my economic needs, my basic needs are really taken care of. I may not have all of what I want. Um, You know, I may still um, have, um, you know, difficulty in this economy. But um, in general, the problems today aren't the problems that we had maybe 40 years ago, 50 years ago, 60 years ago. And you look back to the New Deal when people were really struggling. And so I think there's a belief that people are, in general, aligning more on along these cultural lines. Um, so you have people in working class areas throughout the country. Eastern Iowa was one of the last places, I think, to shift, to make this shift. 
Um, but you've had it happening for a long time. You know, 20, 30 years ago, you started to see Appalachia shift uh, towards the Republicans. And then uh, it moves, creeps up into Western Pennsylvania, then the rest of Pennsylvania. Then you get the upper Midwest flipping in 2016. Um, so we are voting more and more along really lines of geography in place. Um, you know, I think it's, it's you know, you look at the the map maybe 30 years ago, 40 years ago, and it's real patchwork, right? You have places like that are blue, like Eastern Iowa or blue, like West Virginia that are now uh, either solidly red or moving more and more red. Um, and it's because really, I mean, we are as a society really kind of pulling apart, right? There is this big divide and that you're seeing not necessarily between the cities, but definitely in the suburbs uh, that are moving left and a lot of rural areas and old working class cities um, that have been shifting more and more right in the era of Donald Trump. There's this theory that was propounded by Thomas Frank uh, years ago, back in the 2000s. Uh, what's the matter with Kansas? That working class people are basically voting against their own interests when they vote Republican. Uh I've always had trouble with that that theory, but what's your take on that in, 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 in light of how you address this in your book? Well, I mean, I think that um, that is a pretty narrow view of what is in the interests of, of working class people. I think that, um, you know, people uh, want a good job. They want a thriving economy. Um, you know, they even want, I think, a, a good business climate so they can have jobs. And so this idea that the narrow interest of the working class is purely in uh, lies in, you know, how many benefits government is giving out is a pretty, it has always been a pretty narrow view of um, working class politics and working class priorities. Um, and I think you saw this and, you know, he wrote that book right after um, 2004. And a version of this kind of happened in the 2000s, right? I mean, George W. Bush did a lot better uh, in um, a lot of these blue collar places than Republicans before him had. And Donald Trump did even better, right, in 2016. Um, but you were starting to see this shift then. It was pretty new. And that's what Thomas Rank was responding to um, in his book. Um, but now we're seeing that shift happening on steroids, where, um, you know, those areas of the country that um you know he was talking about are you know you almost can't see them ever going back into the democratic fold i mean that, that back then it was like well we lost them for an election or two can we get them back um and now you almost can't see uh, uh can't see them going back to the democratic fold what i do think is uh, the democrats have almost given up the ghost here in that um you don't i think really see them wanting to campaign uh very much on working class economics to the same degree that they had in even in the 2000s, um, that they're really emphasizing these issues that they think they're going to win them the suburbs, um, specifically on the Dobbs decision, specifically on um, this whole idea of democracy. Um, and that's what they really want to talk about. Right. And, and, and I think they've just doubled down on this idea that, you know, yes, that things have realigned and we're going to try to uh, press our own advantages rather than try to maybe go back and win some of these rural areas. I think what's impressive about your book is is the the research that's gone into it. I mean, I remember living here that after the sixteen race, all the all the people parachuted in here, as you put it in your book. Uh, 
I, I remember this because I was interviewed by some folks from newspapers and organizations. You know, what happened here? They looked at us like lab rats. I mean, how did Trump win the, these areas? Uh, but you you explore this uh, more data, a data-driven approach, which I think our listeners would find very interesting to look at. This isn't just opinions. It's it's interpreting, uh, interpreting data. Could you share a little bit your approach on this? Sure. Uh, so uh, I'm a little bit different than most of your journalists who are going to go into and parachute in to uh, areas and try to go to diners and meet with voters and report. I mean, I, I you know, I did do that a little bit for the book, but my skill set is different. I, I just want to look at what do the what do the data and the numbers um, show us, uh, you know, as objectively as possible. Right. I mean, uh, there's nothing more. Uh, bracing than uh, looking at the map of election results. And, you know, that really tells you what the fundamental ground truth is um, of, you know, the kinds of places that that have been moving in one direction versus the other direction. Um, and you really can't argue <laughs> with that. Um, but I think you can often sometimes take issue with a single reporter's interpretation based on a couple interviews in a diner. Um, so I wanted to bring that perspective to it, which I think was pretty lacking in previous treatments of this subject. Um, I think, by the way, you think you, I think you need all kinds of, of, of ways of approaching this. I don't think you can just purely look at this through the lens of data. I do think you need to go and talk to people. And that's what I do in my job as a pollster. But, you know, I want to kind of bring a good mix of data and um, interviews and um, anecdotes, let's say, uh, with uh, with talking to talking to voters. Um, but I also wanted to do this from the perspective of somebody who uh, was inside the republic is inside the Republican coalition, um, as opposed to maybe somebody who is just a fundamentally not not only an outsider from the perspective of not living in the places where you know, these shifts have been happening, but an outsider from the perspective of their politics, right? And that's where the place where most reporters come from when they're talking to Trump voters, when they're talking to people in the Republican Party. Um, I've also struggled with this myself because, as you mentioned, I work in the George W. Bush campaigns and administration. And so I was not the kind of Republican that initially gravitated towards Trump. Um, but I really you know, after seeing that 2016 election result to say, I have to write this book because um, this, you know, I just seen the power of this as a Republican operative who, you know, had really tried and uh, over the years uh, to try and make some of these trends happen, to try and flip some of these states. And it only happens with Donald Trump at the top of the ticket. Um, so I said, this is pretty powerful. I have to look at this, but I have to also, uh, you know, I come at this with a sympathetic lens, I guess, from the perspective of the, you know, of trying to understand the Republican voter, because I think a lot of this has been mischaracterized. It's been mischaracterized as racial resentment. It's been mischaracterized as authoritarianism. It's been mischaracterized. I mean, this sort of caricature of uh, the Republican voter um, that doesn't really ultimately, I think, take 50 percent of the country seriously. Um, and so I don't think that's a real uh, analysis. So I, so I do think that um, you need that perspective uh, in this debate. Uh, what I like about your book, too, is it, you, you, you display your arguments in terms of numbers. And I think one thing that should scare the Democrats 
uh, in reading your book, and I would advise them to do so, uh, is is just the pure numbers. It comes down to math on a lot of uh, on a lot of these issues as far as the future and and the shape of the coalitions going forward if present trends remain the same. Um, can you talk about that a little bit? And again, talk, refresh uh, our listeners have heard this before because this has been a major topic of my show over the years has been um, the the realignment and and Trump voters and understanding how and why Trump won. But uh, restate for our listeners the definition of working class uh, in terms that uh, all of those us of us in, inside refer to it as. Sure. Um, so I think when you talk about trends, I think it's helpful to, uh, I think, talk about maybe some of the beltway ideas that people have had about where these trends were leading us. So back in the Obama era, back in um, 2012, um, you had a lot of people saying Republicans are never going to win another election again because you have this rising coalition of uh, non-white voters in the country who are going to become a majority of the population in 2045 and, and um, you know, in a few decades um, uh, you know, white voters are going to be a minority of the U.S. population. And um, and as a result of that, you know, you also have very high support margins within these groups for Obama and pretty decent turnout, too. And so the idea is if you just played these trends out over over time, um, there was just no way that the Republican Party, as, as it was currently constituted, was going to win. But I think the takeaway from that message, the takeaway from that um, was actually very different. Turns out to be very different that the Republican Party, as then constituted, could not have won. Um, but the party went in a dramatically even more of a direction, right, of doubling down on Trump's rhetoric on immigration um, on, you know, in some cases in the 2016 campaign, going out of his way to alienate. Hispanic voters uh, with his rhetoric about uh, the wall and immigration and his announcements, he's in all the kind of off-color things he said, right, in, in rallies. And and um, people were very surprised that not only does Trump win, but he also wins by winning, in many places, more Hispanic voters. He wins with more African-American voters. And then in 2020, um, he makes even further gains, um, you know, along the Rio Grande Valley in Texas. Um, he shifts those places by 20, 30 points in his directions. In Miami, um, you have, uh, you know, really minority communities throughout the country are shifting towards Trump. So what is going on if there is going to be this so-called coalition of the ascendant that Democrats were predicting? What is going on uh, with these voters? And um, what we're seeing is that these groups are not um, signing up for um, this sort of, um, you know, racialized vision of American politics um, where they're all part of this racially based coalition of minority voters that I think that people were predicting during the Obama era um, that increasingly a lot of these voters, a lot of these people are moving out to the suburbs. Um, they're moving to different places in the country. They're living in more integrated communities. There's intermarriage and they're not exclusively defined in, as much um, by race. And so I think that that is the big trend that's been happening. It's been happening side by side, right, with this education trend. So when we talk, we use this kind of wonky phrase called education polarization. Yeah, you know, maybe a few people have heard of that, but not very many. Um, what that means is um, you have more and more people with college degrees um, voting with the Democrats, and you have more and more people without college degrees um, voting um, with Republicans, and uh, especially in this era of Trump. 
And so um, ultimately, you know, you still have way more people in this country who don't have a college degree than do have a college degree, and especially among non-white voters. And so that's why we're seeing the trends we're seeing and why you're seeing this new coalition taking shape um, that is more, you know, a coalition of non-college graduates um, that increasingly goes across racial lines. You're listening to Heartland Politics on WVIK, Quad Cities NPR. This is your host, Robin Johnson, and I'm very pleased to have as my guest today, Patrick Ruffini, who's uh, the uh, a political consultant, Republican political consultant who worked with uh, the George W. Bush administration. He specializes in polling, uh, and he's written his first book. Uh, it's called Party of the People, Inside the Multiracial Populist Coalition, Remaking the GOP. Uh, I recommend this book, and I had him as a guest just because uh, – the topic of this book is playing out nationally, but it's also very relevant to what's going on here in politics in Iowa and Illinois. We've been talking a little bit about about his book here. And I'm just, I mean, in my discussions with voters, and I'm curious for your take on this and the role it plays in in, in your book, this, this issue of negative partisanship. I mean, people that, and, and for my listeners, that means uh, you hate the other guys more than you like your guys. And I almost think that's what's going on with a lot of voters anymore. Um, and I'm curious how this fits into the movement of Hispanic voters from the Republicans over to the Democrats, which has been very plain here uh, in the last couple cycles. Are they moving because they like the Republicans or like Trump more, or is it driven more by they don't like the Democrats anymore? And and what, what are the reasons for either of those, uh, I, I guess, uh, movements? Yeah, there's a push and pull effect here. And I think there's a lot to be said for the idea that they don't like what's happening in the in the Democratic Party right now, that they don't like uh, not just what's happening necessarily where, where the party is headed culturally, um, but, you know, what has happened economically over the last few years. And I think, um, you know, the, the biggest takeaway um, I have in my research of Hispanic voters is always that this is an economically focused community that it, it, this is not uh, really about primarily you know it's not really about you know you have republicans who like to say uh oh this is a community that is very religious that you have more and more evangelicals and are more conservative but um but you know actually like when you actually look at it I, I mean their sensibilities um you know it really is what can help me get ahead in america you know um you know we're starting out oftentimes um, if you're first generation, you're starting out really at the bottom of the economic ladder. So they're really looking um, um, for things that will help them get ahead and help them get ahead, not in the way maybe a Thomas Frank imagined by um, going uh, and signing up for government benefits or, or having benefiting from a generous welfare state. That's actually the opposite of, uh, and that's what I tell people. And that's what I tell conservatives too, right? I mean, because I think conservatives have this image of, you have all these people streaming across the border that are coming here just for welfare benefits. And um, actually in the second or third generation, um, what you're finding is it, it, it's not it's not true. You know, I went down uh, at one point to the Rio Grande Valley of Texas, which is uh, over 90% Hispanic in a lot of places. And, you know, what I heard there and what I heard numerous people say is that they growing up, um, got this message from their parents at the dinner table, talking uh, to people in the community that we all vote Democrat because the Democrat, the Democratic Party is the party of the poor, the poor person. And their response was always, we don't have to be poor, <laughs> right? So it's really a politics of aspiration, right? It's politics of who do you 
uh, aspire to be? Who do you want to be? As opposed to maybe a politics of, you know, who do we, who are we today? And I think that's the kind of community um, that you're, you, th that's the kind of shift you're particularly seeing um, with Hispanic voters. I also think that, you know, we overplay this issue of partisanship a lot because, um, you know, ultimately people are making real-time decisions about what's going on in the country right now. And that can change. And voters shift from election to election. I would say not as many voters are shifting. You know, we're used to the old landslide. We're used to the old Reagan LBJ style landslide, the Nixon landslide. Um, and we, we read about those in the history books now. And that doesn't happen anymore. But that means that every tiny shift, right, and if a county moves two points left or two points right, that can make a big difference in the, in the whole electoral calculus because elections are so close. So we have to almost tune out this idea, right, that voters are completely locked in for one party or the other. And that's true for a lot of people. Um, it certainly creates a lot of difficulties, I think, to reach common ground on policy. But um, in terms of winning elections, I think you, you're seeing a pretty fluid situation. And I, I think you're also seeing a pretty fluid situation with African-American voters in a lot in a lot of these polls, which are showing uh, Donald Trump getting up to 20 percent of that vote. Um, so uh, I, I think I think we we just have to focus on the ways people are, you know, can have their minds change. I thought you made a really interesting point on on social or cultural issues, whatever you want call them, uh, how conservative has shifted a little bit from issues of personal morality to quality of life, where they have the edge. But the Democrats, it seems like, are focusing more on those issues of personal morality. But could you expound on that a little bit for our listeners? Yeah. So I think it's interesting that, you know, Donald Trump came from New York City, right? And that's not the most conservative place in the country. And you don't have many people in New York City who are, you know, members who are, let's say, evangelical born again, members of the uh, so-called religious right. And particularly when Donald Trump was coming up in politics, you know, he had espoused pretty liberal views on a lot of those issues. That's well documented. Um, but it didn't matter because he, in 2016, made a pledge to the conservatives to nominate uh, solid Supreme Court justices off a pre-approved list. Um, and really, I, you know, everywhere else he was going to throw out the existing playbook was going to be completely unscripted. But when it came to his court appointments, he was going to follow the script to a T because ultimately, you know, Donald Trump didn't, you know, isn't motivated by those issues. I mean, he is motivated by the issues of immigration, trade, uh, law and order, right? The, again, these quality of life issues. And I grew up Kind of close to New York City. And I saw this kind of politics play out. I saw, uh, you know, Rudy Giuliani get elected mayor as a Republican. Um, he's a very, very different figure today than he was back then. Um, but back then, the politics, again, nobody was going out and campaigning on social, moral and religious issues there. Uh, you're talking about crime. You're talking about uh, really a lot of the things you're seeing play out nationally right now in terms of far left overreach in big cities. And that's what Trump, that's the kind of model I think uh, that Trump represented and the kind of uh, thinking that he brought to politics. Um, as a result, I think people who kind of maybe thought the Republican Party is maybe a little bit too extreme, too kooky on some of these issues, right? Um, uh, and I think it's different in different parts of the country, took another look, right? Because um, they said, you know, maybe I'm not the most socially conservative person, but, you know, we need to get control of the situation on the border. We need to get tougher on crime, um, you know, and those were 
Uh, really, the issues I think Trump shifted and, uh, you know, it enabled, I think, a lot of people to move over. Um, and that's why you saw him, frankly, get, you know, in 2016, um, you know, he was really dominating those primaries um, based on people who maybe said they were evangelicals, but didn't attend church. Right. We're yeah. less sort of, uh, you know, uh, down the line on every single issue. I, I was another fascinating thing. I, I should have followed up earlier, but I, I got sidetracked on another issue. But when we talk about this educational divide, we talk about uh, those without college degrees and go, those with, with you. You make the point that there's a really important group in there. Those with some college. How big is that group and why do you think they're most important? It is about a third. Very important. Yeah, yeah. So it's about a third of the country. So you, you actually have, uh, you know, roughly a third of people who have a college degree. Maybe it's the more like 36 percent. Um, you've got um, people who attended some college or have an associate degree, right, which is a, also a formal degree, um, but um, did not have, do not have a four-year college diploma. And then you have people who just graduated high school. Um, but it, it turns out the really important dividing line, right, is whether or not you got that four-year college diploma, because all the places where you see just a lot of those folks, um, you know, in those suburbs those have moved really left, really to the left. And where you see not a lot of those types of people, um, those are almost all places that have, have shifted and gone more Republican over time. Um, but, you know, I, I just wanted to bring that home. I don't think it's something your listeners really would be surprised at all by, but I, I think it's something that's very surprising uh, where I currently live inside the Beltway, right? Because um, you know, in my social circle, I mean, you know, a, a, of people who were kind of born and bred, the people I know who were, you know, kind of live in this in, in this environment, almost no one didn't graduate from college, right? In in, in your in these kind of professional circles, and you know, I think that that is the exact thing. And you know, it's not that people didn't go to college; maybe they went for a couple of years, decided, um, you know, that um, all right, I have what I need and I'm going to move forward and I don't need to take on this massive load of debt to actually have, you know, a good life. And in a lot of parts of the country, right. You can't, right. They, but, but whereas, you know, it, you go to a place like the Northern Virginia suburbs or outside New York or outside some of these big major cities, and it's really inculcated. You have to go to college. You have to finish. You have to go to the top, top colleges and universities. Um, and um, so so I think that, you know, I, I wanted to bring it home because it's not, you know, again, it's not this divide, right, where there's a whole bunch of people who there's people you don't know about who maybe didn't even go to college. There's people who went right and who are about a third of the country. And we almost never talk about them, right? Uh, in and um, or if you're in the belt inside the beltway, you're almost a, don't you're almost not aware that they exist. It's a it's a great point, and unfortunately, point, I'm out of time. I've got three or four other questions here, but like all good interviews and 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 books, uh, folks, if you're interested, you're going to have to go buy the book to read read it because there's a lot more to it. Uh, I really appreciate you taking the time, Patrick. Patrick Rafini has been my guest today. 
The book is called Party of the People Inside the Multiracial Populist Coalition Remaking the GOP. Again, Iowa Republican Chair Jeff Kaufman said a year ago, uh, right on the show, this Iowa uh, Republicans are now a working class blue collar party. And uh, uh, it's an enormous shift in our politics, and it's really something worth learning more about. And this is a book to do it with. Uh, Patrick, again, thank you so much for taking the time today. Thank you. Politics with Robin Johnson, a presentation of WVIK Quad Cities NPR.